I want this episode to be fun. There will be a bit of friction. Ramsey and I don't agree on everything. It's a touchy subject that we're going to explore. It's a sensitive topic, but let's make it fun. And whatever we don't discuss during the episode, the Q&A is open. Ask whatever you'd like. Ramsey, I think the last time we spoke publicly was on a podcast you were hosting called The Happy Hour. I think this was before the elections. So maybe just before the elections, maybe last spring. Probably February or March. February or March. So the elections were upcoming. You had been on my podcast before. I was on your podcast. And we were talking about politics and maybe expectations from local agency. This is not really political psychology per se. It's more trying to revisit what we were both doing. You were involved in digital media. You were involved also in, not just in podcasting, but also in persuasion. On your Instagram channel, you had soft power. You were advising too. And your voice was heard, loud and clear. And then you kind of took a step back. And now you're stuck with me, a year later. I want to revisit maybe expectations, your own maybe your own angle of whether or not the elections were a success whether or not the 13 candidates impressed you in any way or if they disappoint you until today really your own instinctual feeling of what went right and what went wrong and we'll start there one year after the election we're starting there we're starting there um hello Uh, thank you only for hosting me again hello everyone thank you for being here um yes i did take a step back after the elections probably to reassess and we see how we did what we did and where we succeeded where we failed um i would have liked if everyone did that unfortunately the majority did not and but yeah, actually, let, let me take a step, step back and let me go back to your, your podcast. Because um, we, we kind of discussed what were the expectations. And I think I was very um, pra- pragmatic about my expectations in a way that I thought whatever change we, we end up making or doing in the elections is not in itself the change we need. It's just pushing the status quo in a way um, where it changes we're telling people that change is possible we can change I think I was I was realistic about the fact that we we did not expect things to change after the elections or during the elections as much as being able to, to remove people that were in power for tens of years is in itself an achievement um, so if we were able to replace some of the older faces with newer ones my argument was always the same with people who were, how do you know that, I mean, I'm gonna talk about Mark since Mark is a personal friend. How do you know that Mark is good? I don't, Mark to be Dow. honest, Mark Dow, yes. Yeah. I don't, uh, from a political perspective, I, I don't know whether he will succeed or fail. But the thing is, the fact that people were able to change Tal Islan in a, in a 
in a place that is so hard to change uh, um, uh, entrenched sectarianism, right? Means that if Mark Dow fails in four years' time, we can elect someone new. It's about it's about people realizing that we can tip the status quo, we can change things. So my expectations was we're not really about, you know, whether or not the dream team is gonna come after the elections and you know win it all or change things, as much as just this incremental uh, um, success in a way, because people we, we know from research that people were desperate. People people felt that they don't they do not have political efficacy, that they cannot change things, that politicians don't care about them, and unfortunately we are seeing trends in in low political efficacy after the elections now, especially amongst people who voted for change, who feel like ah oh, I wish I did not vote or nothing changed, and I think this has a lot to do with the expectations people had before the elections, right? Everyone was expecting things to become, to, to change. In a, in, a, in a very serious way. And I think that was not, that's not realistic. And I did say that tens of times. Nothing is going to change after the elections other than the fact that we know that we can kick people out of their seats. So we'll get into your research and what you've acquired regarding the research, but I want to hone in then. If you measured your expectations accordingly, it seems like there is a success that should be honored and appreciated. And if that's the case, why did you take that step back? Yes. So I did um, enjoy the success of winning, but also I had concerns, right? Because to be honest, 13, 13 new MPs was a big number. Mm. And I think bigger than we expected i mean, in the I mean we were hoping for for something around 15 right but realistically speaking and i'm sure the george, george remembers the, remembers the conversation because we've had this conversation on multiple occasions days before the elections realistically i was like if we if we manage to get in six or seven new mps like that's a that's a real win mm. we got in 13. Yani, if, we, if we were to be realistic shway, I had doubts that we'd, we'd get in anyone. We got three. So, a kid, there was a win. Mm. But also there was a concern that the number is big. We will not know how to handle it, how to, how to deal with it. And I think my concerns were on point mm. because a year after the elections, we don't have a homogeneous group. We already, we already have multiple groups from this group. And we already see this, these multiple groups attacking one another. Right. So even today, I mean, there's that. I, yeah. don't know if you, I don't know if you, the audience saw that video that Paula went viral. Cynthia, yeah. The Paula Cynthia fallout. I mean that. Yeah. And that's a year. And a lot has happened on that front. Oh, absolutely. I but, mean, yeah, they, they accuse. Right. They accuse Michelle and Mark and uh, uh, Wadah of being the Sahnawi guy. Um, so there are things that have happened over the past year. And I think none of the of, of these mps or the people that rooted for them um took a step back and and we assessed where you know their position where do we stand what do we want and yes of course some say that we've we've walked into political uh, new political alignments that uh, we don't want the revolution we don't want we want change but not necessarily the way people people envision it so um but there are dif different different voices amongst those 13 right um now, when, when I when I went uh, on um, 
Naila's podcast. Actually, let me do a segue here because Naila Al-Khuri, a talented podcaster, host of Poly Talks. You guys were a dynamic duo before the elections. I mean, in a way, you hosted many of the change candidates day in, day out. I, I sense that you felt back then that what you're doing could steer things in a better direction. Yes. And I think it's almost like an endorsement. Almost an endorsement. Do you feel any remorse there? No, no absolutely not. Absolutely no. not. Okay. I, because, again, th- those who spoke to me know wh- where I stood in regards to, to the individuals themselves. Mm. You know, I, I was like, I'm not sure who of these people is going to succeed in their jobs, right? Yeah. I don't know who of these people are, is going to do a good job. But the point is, they agreed to, to, take, to, to fight the fight, right? They agreed to, to stand up against those people. And even if we have, if I, if I have disagreements with some of them, I was happy to endorse them because, well, I was happy to see some new faces, right? Mm-hmm. Um, just to make the point, um, on Naila's podcast, I said some, I don't know, six months ago, my problem with the 13 MPs is that they've never met after they decided that they're falling apart and made a public decision to, you know, divorce one another. So it kept on hanging, like everything in this country. We don't talk about our problems, you know. We just we leave things hanging in Lebanon. And this in itself is a culture, a very unhealthy culture. So I think this is where my, where my problem is. Mm. I saw the problems happening or, or, or occurring or I, I, I sort of predicted how this is going to fall out and I just took a step back um, following a certain incident um, which I would uh, don't want to discuss but yeah it was a decision to take a step back following this but it, it does not mean that I regret endorsing any of mm. the 13 candidates or any of the other candidates that made it because I did not only endorse the 13 right yeah we, we also had a fight in Metin right about Muatinon yeah. uh, uh, Muatinat uh, whether or not and I actually have had a very um popular video that made Muatinu Muatinat hate me uh, about Sharb al-Nahas where I accused him of being authoritarian in a way. Um, so, yeah. The reason I wanted to start there is because that's really, I mean, other than a dinner that we shared last week, hadn't spoken to you, hadn't seen you, um, and it did feel like you, you wanted to take that step back for personal reasons, perhaps, but I've, I'm glad you've kept the narrative going anyway, maybe in a smaller scale on your Instagram page. And of course, that's not what you do. You're a PhD researcher. And I want to get to know a bit more about your research. We all know that you're the political psychologist on Instagram. And I know that your research covers Lebanon in terms of violence and collective violence. Could you, and this is the worst question to ask a PhD, st- and <laughs> there are people that I've asked this to, could you in a friendly way, explain your research and how it relates to this issue. Maybe it could really hone in on the last year. It could go back further if you'd like. But just a quick summary of your research in Lebanon. Um, yeah, it's not a frightening question to me. I'm, I'm comfortable with my question. I've had people I, break I, down. I know, I know I'm being peer-reviewed by, by, yeah. by the, the few social psychologists in the front, but... I'm comfortable with, my, with the question. You should um, see the questions they ask me when they interview me. I'm like, oh my, I'm going to have a heart attack. <laughs> and I'm not even a PhD researcher. <laughs> um, so I, um, my PhD 
was about um, collective violence beliefs. I've developed a scale that measures collective violence beliefs, and I've established a few predictors that predict collective violence beliefs. And I've made the association between um, those beliefs or attitudes and violent behavior. So I've established the fact that my scale is relevant and people who score high on my scale are more likely to endorse um, violent behavior rather than just attitudes. So in short, I study collective violence um, attitudes and everything related to it. So that differentiation between behavior and attitude, let's go there. What exactly is that? And to somebody that knows very little about this subject, how would you how would you explain it? So attitudes is the the things you think, the values you hold. What do you think is right or wrong? Um, do you think the government should, I don't know, uh, control the Internet? So whether you agree to this statement or disagree to this statement, that's an attitude. Um, whether you think that groups and society should be equal or not, that's an attitude. Whether you think we should be more egalitarian or not, that's an attitude. Whether you think it's okay to hit someone because they disagree with you, that's an attitude. Even among friends when they hit you? <laughs> it no. Depends on the intention. Oh, there we go. Okay. Friendship. <laughs> so, um, so whatever people think, you know, about life in general, about what values they hold, it's, it can be uh, defined as an attitude. A behavior, on the other hand, is this attitude added to it, the number of social norms that you as a person might be exposed to, and your intentions, and to uh, put all together into an act. So... In terms of violence, for instance, we know for a fact that people who endorse or support collective violence, which means they have positive attitudes about collective violence, are not necessarily people who, who will um, become violent or behave violently. So violence is one of those very unique, extreme uh, um, behaviors where someone expresses um, lots of emotions and thoughts in an act so when someone when someone behaves violently many emotions and, and thoughts go into that act which is why it's one of those behaviors that endorsing it sorry by, by, by saying endorsing it I mean supporting the act done by others does not necessarily mean that it's an act that I will do. So, for instance, you'd see a, a man that was beheaded in France because he spoke about the prophet um, to his students and then an 18 years old guy comes and beheads him. So, if, if we were to analyze how people approach this topic on social media, you'd see that many people would endorse the act in a way that they would justify it. They would think, well, it's okay. The guy spoke with the prophet and he shouldn't have went there. So those people might not necessarily do the act, but they support it enough to provide this um, 
nurturing environment for the few people who want to act or feel like, yes, they can put all of those emotions and thoughts into an action. So usually in other behaviors that are not this extreme. So violence is an extreme behavior, right? In other behaviors, usually people who endorse an attitude tend to behave it. So if you think, um, for instance, that the government should ban pornography, if there's something to do about, to do about it, you would. If you think your religion should ban people wearing swimsuits, then you should go down to the beach and ban women from wearing swimsuits. So this is a behavior that is an extension to an attitude. But that's not violence. Violence is, a, is this, this extreme form of behavior. So usually people, I mean, researchers find, find it hard to do the association between the attitude and the behavior. Um, so one could hold an attitude and not be skilled on this. I mean, in other words, you can hold a belief system that does not necessarily translate to violence, but you're measuring the potential for that to turn into violence. I'm not referring to my scale per se. My scale, according to my research, actually does demonstrate that there is an association between attitudes on my scale and acting violently. So people that endorsed my dimensions of collective violence end up demonstrating in an experiment collective uh, um, violent behavior. Mm. But I'm saying in general, in mm. general, people might justify other people acting violently, but might feel that they don't have it in them to act violently. So, and I think this, this has a lot to do with um, personality, upbringing. Um, I mean, violence does require also some physical um, power in a sense, you know, w willingness to engage in a physical um, confrontation. Yeah. And many people don't feel they have what it takes, but they justify it. They justify other people doing that. So, so it's the justification. That's the key that's word. The, yeah. And I think in terms of violence, why we see violence more common in places that violence is justified in is because I understand that maybe if there's a population of 400 million people, probably there's 1% of those who would endorse violence, endorse us, say in the open that they support acts of violence. Right. And then from that 1%, maybe other 10, 15, 20% would act on that. So we're talking about very small numbers when, when, you know, when compared to, to general population. But keep in mind that these small numbers are sufficient hmm. to kill someone, to do a terrorist attack, to plant a bomb, to start a war. So in that, in that journey, which I guess is universal, that's not Lebanon no, per no, no, se, no, no. that can happen yeah. anywhere, and it happens. Um, what are the measuring factors for Lebanon? Is it collective in community? Is it collective in other ways? H how are you describing the Lebanese scene through that research? Well, I think there's, there's many predictors that predict collective violence that are present in the Lebanese um, uh, social structure. Hmm. Um, one of which is the social norm. So the Lebanese social norm in general is one that is welcoming, welcoming to violence. 
we welcome violence in our social structure. Uh, we welcome it in our in how the way we talk, the way we we address one another, the way we. Um, Think about the things that friends tell one another and you'd end up realizing that we have violence in, in our language. Even in the way we love one another, right? That's literally an act of violence. Uh, I'm asking someone to bear me. So, um, this isn't, is a social norm. Isn't that love though? <laughs> yeah. 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 I love you, so I'm going to kill you. Okay. Yes. Um, I know at least one group that is saying that. Um, so, this is a social norm, right? And this is social norm. So we know that attitudes um, are not fixed. So people's people's uh, uh, opinions about things uh, change. So if someone, for instance, um, justify authoritarianism, mm. um, they're not bound to always justify authoritarianism. Yeah. So when someone says today that yeah, the Lebanese society changed over the past twenty years, it did. It became more radical. It became more radical. Of course. Because the different social identities that came out because of the, the, the differences in the narratives and the fact that many, many groups feel the grievances, right? Many, many groups feel like they're not being given a voice. And therefore, they, their own narrative is coming out as something different than the group's narrative. So it's becoming more radical, right? Because... I want my views, and my views are no longer tolerant of your views. So if I think in Saida, you can't swim on the beach. Now, I don't care about the Lebanese government. I don't care what you do in Patron. In Saida, we're Sunnah, and you can't swim on the beach. And this is not some, some sort of like someone is trying to attack women. And this is not the... the uh, I mean, I understand how people might, might think that this is an attack on women, but I think this is an expression of attitudes. A group of... of people from a certain group from a certain uh, uh, religious background are expressing some form of an extreme attitude in a way it is an extreme i agree and there are many 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 people of this uh, sunni faith who, who might not be as as radical as extreme but i'm just saying the social norm that has pushed out all other narratives in this community has allowed intolerance to grow so when so, I so multiple narratives are an obstacle to intolerance, because what I hear you saying is that you can have a divergence of opinion. Oh, absolutely. And that that, that maybe prevents the more radical fringe views from yes superseding. Yes, but not in a way where, you know, we say uh, not in a way where we we uh, portray an image of women or people in the sixties in Juni and say this is Lebanon, because also this is not Lebanon. This was one version of Lebanon, but there were other versions of Lebanon. But there were people who were being attacked in other places in Lebanon during that same time. So there were different narratives in the country that we just we 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 seem to ignore. Mm. So there was an acceptance of this one narrative that has been accepting everyone else, right? And everyone seemed to have been accepting this one open narrative, but. It does not represent the majority's views. The majority's views is that we have our own attitudes, our own social norms, and they don't necessarily align with yours. Is there a way to look at this over time? So the, the positive attitudes towards violence, are you able to look at it chronologically and say there are, it's almost like a graph, because you said it's becoming more radical in the last 20 years. 
Is there a way to actually quantify that and say Saida today is more radical than yesterday? I think all of Lebanon today is more radical than yesterday. Um, Muslim and Christian neighborhoods in Lebanon are more radical. So let's get into that word then. Rad- what is radical exactly? Someone who is who got to the point where they think they are so intolerant of the other person's view or the other group's view that they don't think they want to hear, accept, talk, uh, uh, live with, or entertain the idea that something else exists. And I'm not saying that I disagree with this, but how, how are you able to look at that over time? I just think the fact that there were glimpses of a state after Taif with Hariri. I'm not defending Hariri. I have, I have my own criticism of the guy, but there were glimpses of, of, of some structure and some hope. And during that time, we should, have, we should have seen reconciliation in the country, right? We should have seen a proper addressing to the civil war, which never happened. And then we went into the assassinations in 2005 onwards, and then we went into the no-state state, where every group went back to feeling they are entitled to having their own norms that might disagree with others come out. So structure, and I'm, I'm in a way trying to take the conversation to a place maybe we can sort of engage each other. Structure meaning... I'm going to be nice. Uh, the structure meaning the semblancy of a system that prevents the more radical views from overtaking individual freedoms. Yes. Th- that semblance of a system re-emerging in the 1990s maybe until the mid-2000s the way you described it that that prevents an incident like Saida from happening because it wouldn't if it were to happen there would be accountability towards it so this whole this whole research is in a way underneath the expected structure and when you remove it or you erode it that kind of collective violence or the attitudes towards it takes off. Is that what I'm... Yes, that is. Which is why, Roni, you, you think we have a problem. I don't, so... Not, not a problem. Yeah, I, but, I, but I know that you like certain posts I post and yeah. you don't others. That's where I know you. we, we can have a debate. <laughs> yeah. Um, eh, because I do agree that the problems we saw emerged because of the lack of state, lack of structure. Mm. I agree on that. But also because there's a fundamental problem that has not been resolved. Lebanon it came to exist in 1916 on a map. I don't care about the narrative. I don't care because it's not realistic. When someone says Lebanon is a thousand years old, that's not a realistic narrative. Lebanon is not a thousand years old country. Mount Lebanon is, yes. But then Mount Lebanon was never Lebanon. Because the Lebanon that extended in a way to to include multiple sectarian groups that were not originally in Mount Lebanon did not account for the differences in the narratives that those groups are going to bring to the table. So when we walked into Lebanon in 1920 and we decided this is Greater Lebanon, very good. So we have a country now that has at least eight 
strong sects. Two of them have been fighting for a hundred years over Mount Lebanon. So what's your plan? The plan is to have an agreement between the Christians and the Sunnis, which it's not really an agreement, it's more of a gentleman's agreement where, you know, Riyadh Salih Amshar shook hands and said, you know what, we're just going to share the country. Okay, we'll, we'll get into that. We'll get yeah. into that because that's so, in a way going into what I, I want to segue okay. there later. But just so, in terms of your research, hmm. I wanted to just understand the word collective. Is that the way, I guess, it's, is it sectarian? Is that, the, is that the group that you look at? So in other words communities versus other groups i i do think in lebanon the majority of groups are sectarian um and those who are not sectarian are labeled anti-sectarian so in a way they are sectarian just they're they're um <laughs> yeah they are a reaction they're in a state of of reactivity right they're reacting to sectarianism so uh um and I, I also, one of the things that I keep saying is that we don't have proactive politics in Lebanon. We only have reactive politics. So something happens and you see all these media platforms talking about it. So we wait for the next big thing to happen. Everyone is speaking about it. So we only do reactive politics. And even, you know, even the groups that are upset. So what's, what's your plan? I'm just, I'm anti-sectarianism. So, so, okay, what's your political agenda? I'm going to fight sectarianism. In, in, so, in your research, you said that you've seen an increase, even in that the few years that you've been doing this. Is there an increase in certain groups compared to others? The way the way you've conducted the research, I, I think there's a general trend. So, so one of the, one of the things that caused me to clash with many people um, before the elections, or one year, be two years before the elections, when the thawra was happening, I was conducting my second research and. Um, my second data collection, let's say. And I started analyzing my data, and my data was showing that the younger generation in Lebanon is more sectarian than the older generation. And I started talking about this. That's interesting. So even during the October yes. 17 moment. Yeah. So and they were like, yeah, but Lebanon is, there's a new thing. Yeah, but no, there's a new thing happening amongst the 10,000 people you know. But Lebanon is, is on a different, different place. And... I did say that this the the thawra is going to like, like in a way you know um, come to an end, right? Of course, um, the point needs to be made that I'm, I'm not I'm not a pro thawra man in general, and I I support political change that happens through a political you know um, uh, discourse. Uh, um, all the all the um, revolutions in the world that led to to systematic change in states happened because they were supported by by political groups that had an agenda that had something to say that had a plan that had an idea an ideology anything but saying that we just we're anti-state we want what do you we just want the state to fall so these two words that you heard i guess from conducting field research data collection anti-sectarian and anti-system but the research shows that people are more sectarian and then the system is more entrenched. So how is that explained? Because um, the majority of the people who say that they're anti-sectarian are um, come from one group, right? The group that was leading the Thawra. So, the and, th and, sorry, so I'm, I'm, I'm interrupting you deliberately. What, what is that group in the research? How, how do you group it? 
Is it October 17? Yes. Oh, yes. So that's a group. Yes. Okay. Because I ask people, so how do you identify yourself politically? And well, some of them identify themselves as, um, you know, they belong to the October 17th revolution. Hmm. But many people identify themselves as nothing. That they had, they have absolutely no political affiliation. And that, you know, that, that's where it becomes interesting. It's like when someone tells me I'm not sectarian, but then I speak to them for 10 minutes and we, I realize that they endorse a the narrative of a, sect, of a sect in Lebanon. So well, you, maybe you're not sectarian in a way that maybe you don't, you don't pray, but you, you, then you don't understand what sectarianism is. It's not whether or not you believe in a God. It's whether or not you have a subscription to a narrative that a sect is promoting. So if you think, for instance, that Lebanon is a thousand years old, I don't care whether you go to a church or not, you are subscribing to a marinate narrative of Lebanon. If you think that we are a minority and they're going to eat us, I don't care whether or not you believe in a God or not. At the end of the day, you belong to a minority group that either lives in Mount Lebanon or in the, in the south or in the north. So sectarianism is not about faith. It's about what narrative do you subscribe to? And I think majority of people in Lebanon subscribe to a narrative. They believe in a narrative. So even those who would think that they are anti-state, anti-sectarianism, even, uh, um, so, yeah, someone, someone attacked me a few weeks ago, said, um, well, one of the reasons I don't post about Lebanon anymore is every time I post something, someone attacks me. Um, you should see my inbox. Yeah, I, oh, I know, I know. I can imagine, I can imagine. <laughs> Fuck your sister. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do not have a sister. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck your whatever. Yeah, sure, go sure, ahead. Go if, ahead. You, if you can, if yeah. If you can, yeah. He might enjoy it. <laughs> be, my, yeah, be my guest. <laughs> be my guest. Um, <laughs> so someone said, you don't speak about colonialism. True, I don't. Colonialism. Yes. Meaning French men. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. But, well, partly because the Lebanon you defend is a result of colonialism. So you cannot be anti-colonialism and then draw a Lebanese map and say, this is my Lebanon. Because technically it's not. Okay, so I will get to that subject. One more question on the research. Did you have groups that, adamant, that, that were straightforward in saying we are sectarian? Oh, absolutely uh, many, many people in so uh, what, what kind of a group f- fun fact um the majority of people who did not endorse any, anyone politically still had a sectarian identification so only um i'd say out of the four thousand people i've i've surveyed over three years um i'd say only around 20 percent said they have no sectarian affiliation the majority subscribe to a sect they're either shia or sunnis or druze or marinades or whatever um but many within those sects said that they don't have a particular affiliation. And that's also a fun fact. So the majority of people in Lebanon, if you, you know, talk to them, they say, well, I'm, 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 I'm with no one. And then 10 minutes later, they're a wit. Or, uh, sorry, no offense to a wit. I'm just saying, I'm giving an example, you know, or, or, or Verjum Latii. So point is, I understand that in, in, in self, you know, when people self-report about themselves, uh, they t- tend to um, distance themselves mm. from sectarianism or from sectarian politics because they think it's it's wrong. But it reminds me of these closeted Trump supporters 
that were afraid to say they're voting for Trump out of feeling shamed yeah. about it. Yeah. So we, we have the same thing here. Um, you know, it's like the majority of people do not want to express their um, feelings about what happened inside that few days ago. But I'm sure if we were to survey the Lebanese people, the majority of them would think that, yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, the majority of people feel like, yes, they endorse the narrative of the people who live there. Um, so I guess the point I'm trying to make is uh, there are limitations to self-report uh, surveys, mm. uh, which I think we need to acknowledge and understand. But in general, in Lebanon, when you ask someone a survey of 300 questions, you have enough items to determine whether or not um, they understand what they're talking about. Um, this all hints at something that I believe in, and I think this is in a way to open up a debate. Um, by the way, do you need another gin and tonic? Please. Can we get him two? <laughs> <laughs> this one gin and tonic or two. You're allowed to have five tonight. My favorite moment was Albert Costanian, some five, six, six whiskeys in. He's having a great time. We're like, we have to end the episode. We have to go home. It's like, keep it going. <laughs> Let's talk about words and what they mean to each one. And I think you're you're far more advanced than me in terms of being uh, not just academically, but also maybe able to define these words in a way that's meaningful. I've said this on the podcast many times. I've said it here. Sometimes the audience agrees. Sometimes they don't. I still don't know what sectarian means. And, and sorry to, I'll add one thing. I, over time, it's not something that I always believed in. I, I had a negative feeling towards that word as a younger activist, let's say. Uh, I don't anymore. I think of it as neutral, neither good nor bad. And then if you stretch it out further, I begin to think that Lebanese and sectarian, they're one and the same. It's almost like an equation and that, whether that's good or bad is something else. Whether what emerges from that could be consequential. But how would you define sectarian? So I, I submitted a paper for uh, for a journal for review, and one of the reviewers said, because um, I use the term sectarian politics when talking about Lebanon, and the reviewer was like, "Yeah, but in Lebanon, I later found out that he's a he's a U.S." Um, political scientist. So he was like, in Lebanon, um, the fight is not Shia Sunni, and therefore it's not sectarian. It's interreligious because it's, you know, Sunni, Shia, Marinate, Druze. And I'm just saying this to say that people might disagree on the terminology. Right. Yeah. Um, so interreligious is the, the, an alternative way of describing. Yeah, I, I disagree with that. I, I, I like yeah. the sectarian because sect interreligion means that the fight is religious in nature. Right. I don't think it is. Yeah. The fight is about the narrative. The fight is about the story. It's not about whether whether your God is better than my God. We, we don't see people in Lebanon fighting over, uh, um, you know, whether Muhammad is the prophet or Jesus is the son of God. It's not the fight. This fight is about the story. Is it a country that is open and free and uh, accepting and uh, uh, is it a country that loves life the way marinates see it is it a country that uh, 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 is it a country that loves life uh, with dignity thank you with, with dignity as Hezbollah portray it 
which which narrative am, are you subscribed to? Which is why I like the sectarian um, uh, word. It's it's not. So I would say it's it's a representation of different groups that in nature are religious but in practice hold a storyline for um for the existence that might not be religious uh, in itself rather social so there's a social narrative you know to, to, to who these people are to what we are as a sect what do we represent the things we like the things we do so a sect could be translated as a social narrative a sect is a social group that holds a social narrative. A social group that holds a social narrative. You know, that's one of the best answers I've heard ever. How to define sectarian? You just did. So a social group that holds a social narrative. If that's the social fabric of Lebanon, going back to 1916, wouldn't the National Pact make, make perfect sense? You have social groups holding social narratives trying to have a social evening where yes they're socially and accepting socially happy socially happy in principle what you're saying is true um but then there's a difference between diversity and conflict so you mean someone says yeah but diversity is nice would you want a, a country of one color that's not nice you know we're we're we're, we're proud of that we're diverse in lebanon but we here's where i disagree we're not diverse in lebanon um, diversity requires an agreement over an end goal. So w when you say that we have diverse groups, it means that we have one end goal, but we have different ways to achieve it. Now saying we want a great country is not, uh, is not one goal. Because we disagree on how we define a great country. I've had an interesting conversation with Thea, um, um, who is a social psychologist few few days ago and we were talking about how in one of in one of my research the average score for a national identity in Lebanon is so high like if you ask people how do you how do you identify with being Lebanese everyone is Lebanese so which wasn't the case before no no it was but but again it's not the problem the problem is not with being Lebanese the problem is what does being Lebanese mean so the problem is not in the term mm. of, of whether or not you're national in a sense that whether you, you love the country. Mm. I mean, fighting over whether or not you love the country is, is, a, is a stupid argument. Everyone loves the country. It's just that everyone loves their own story of the country. We don't agree on what the country means or what being Lebanese is. Some people feel being Lebanese is fighting Israel. Some people feel being Lebanese means being open. Some people feel being Lebanese is being diverse or being open or being culturally accepting towards one another or, you know, being international in your upbringing and, and, and society and, and social uh, uh, um, um, thinking. So this is where, 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 where um, the problem happens. If those groups were diverse as they had one common goal, they agreed on what Lebanon is and then they've had a different approach to that Lebanon, then I would understand that, yes, this, this is a perfect story of, of a country that is pluralistic in nature, that holds on to different groups, and these different groups, um, you know, are all helping the country grow. But when we have different narratives, just like 
just make this point. When we have the different narratives, these different groups become conflicting in nature, and then the the relationship between them goes to a, to a place where one wants to, um, well, well, where both feel threatened by one another, and one is trying to win over the other. And every conflict we've seen in Lebanon since 1920 up till 2023 in Saiba is one group trying to tell the other group, I'm threatened by you and I will take measures to make sure you do not overstep the values that I hold. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm, happy to, I'm happy for anyone to challenge me on this. You take any incident in Lebanon where we've seen a, 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 an event that led to conflict or an event that led to a clash. It's always one group threatened by another telling it, we have a value system that we will not let you overstep. So back to your original point, does that mean the absence of a state allows this conflict to come out? Absolutely. But this does not uh, uh, eliminate the fact that we have this conflict where we do not share the same narrative, we don't agree on the same vision, and therefore you take the state out, yes, we go to a civil war. I'll cherry-pick this as much as I can, and maybe I can ask you step by step. Both of us don't know what it's like to be in a Lebanon that is pre-civil war. We're both too young to know what that is, but there are Lebanese that talk about it. There are Lebanese that are happy about it and usually the further back they go in time the happier they are i'm not one to frown upon these photos that are shared uh, i think more recently it's saida instead of beirut where you have these sort of 1960s couples on the beach i think there's a knee-jerk reaction to be too hard on those photos too i think they're fine that's how lebanon presented itself in one photo in the 1960s so be it it's fine but I also think that the further back you go in living memory, the more proactive institutions were. And that was the foundation of modern Lebanon, meaning you go to the 1950s, I think, I could be wrong, you tell me if I'm wrong, I think how we're defining sectarian right now, sectarianism was much worse in that Abdel Nasser was God for half the country. We don't have that right now. Nobody really worships Bashar next door in a way that you can't compare it to Abdel Nasser or any regional leader. Sisi is not Abdel Nasser. No one cares about Sisi. But Abdel Nasser was a Lebanese politician without ever setting foot here during at least for Heb's mandate. There's no Abdel Nasser in Lebanon, but he's worshipped by half the country. The other half hates him. That, to me, is a sectarian story. But the country is not violent in those years. Who's I, where's this coming from? Naila? Naila, you're, you're, you're a podcaster. You're not, you're not allowed to do that. There's a Q&A. There's a Q&A then. You can disagree as much as you'd like. That's staying in the episode. <laughs> By the way, let me plug her. I'm doing an episode with her tomorrow. She produced Chicago Arabia and Casino. She's the reason it happened. 
So I have her newspaper here. It was a fantastic show. Now you have to shut up for the rest of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> I'm watching you. Wardini, calm her down. <laughs> Meaning that the country literally could have torn apart and it didn't. I think that is where the state transcends all of this. Meaning we haven't been in a state like that ever since. That to me is always the missing ingredient of not letting things spill over into what feels more and more like endless conflict in Lebanon. I don't think it's true that we're always mm. the inertia so, so, to fight. So, so you, you're saying that in the 50s, the country could have been torn apart, but it didn't. In the in the but late in the six in late 50s and 60s. But you 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 remember that we went to a skirmish war in the late 50s. That's true. And then it went to a civil war in the 70s. So the fact that the country couldn't be torn apart. Uh, it could have been torn apart, and it did. So maybe not when the the Nasser anti Nasser um, narrative was happening, but the civil war was fueled. Yeah, and I by, agree. by by the Nasser anti Nasser narrative. Absolutely, but what doesn't exist in the 1970s? Sorry, what exists in the 1970s doesn't in the 60s, which is kind of what we're hinting at that there's something that is much bigger. Than Lebanese identity at play. Type so so uh, uh, for, for, uh, okay fine uh, good, good good question. So first of all, we said that people generally tend to think that um, the living memory was you know people were enjoying times before. So just question by show of hands, who was happier as a child? No one. Who who was happier as a child? Cool, makes more sense. Now, who's, who's happy as a child? So we know we know for a fact that people tend to look at the past and think that it was nicer than what it was actually, uh, what, than what what actually is, what mm. it, it actually is. So when someone reflects on history and thinks that, well, we were ha we were living. I mean, my my grandma is ninety, she's still alive, um, but she's old. So when he says we were happy in the fifties. Yes. That's what you think. Sorry, she's saying that's what you think? Or no, no, she I, I'm telling her. Or you're telling and I'm telling everyone here. Oh. That's what she thinks. She thinks the past was nicer. Because when she thinks about the past, she brings up fond memories. She brings up memories of things that she likes. People that she enjoyed spending time with. The past was not better than, than the present. The present today is better than any day we've ever lived on this earth. And this is a misconception about how we perceive life in general as humans. And this is not, it's not about Lebanon. It's, mm. it's, a, it's a general human thing where I mean, you ask me in the U.S., the country was great and we want to make it great again, right? So it's, it's thinking that something was better in the past. This is a misconception related to how we perceive memories. But I invite you to look up um, newspaper uh, uh, articles that speak about the, the the tension that was going on between I don't know Jumlat and uh, uh, Shab or uh, uh, whatever or Shamoun or you know all the all the things that were happening at the time and you see it's pretty much exactly a copy paste of the of the headlines that you see today nothing has changed so I wouldn't really put much weight on how people think they were living their lives in the past.
that's to, to answer one, one angle of the other. Couldn't, couldn't it be said also that Lebanon was better in the 1960s? I can't imagine a Lebanon on, in the 60s on, that was worse than today. Okay. It's hard to imagine On that. what level? On every level. It, it was a new country. It was still supported. There's no, there's no violence politically. The, the, that, sorry, there's no uh, collective violence the way we're talking about it. There's no collective violence on a scale that is threatening. Yeah, Ronia, I, I know that you want to, you, you want to get the point where you say that if it wasn't for for regional factors, no, that's not the point. Because because he said that there, there there were no regional factors in the in the 60s, but there were regional factors in the 70s. Going back to the prioritization of a state above culture, that's really what I'm getting at. That, okay. That's the only time Lebanon had a state. I think the semblances that we felt in the 90s have they don't they pale in comparison. You mentioned Hariri at yeah. the beginning. I think Hariri's maybe his goal was to get somewhere like that. He never got there. So how how, how would you feel about how the Shia were living in the in the 50s when 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 they were asking um, for help from the central state and they weren't getting any? Yeah, that's true. And that's Poverty in the north and the south was real. That's true. Okay, so so again, so poverty today is nationwide. Fine. So if 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 we're trying to scale which Lebanon is is worse in that sense. So so uh, the argument is is this Lebanon worse? It it can be. Again, it's it depends on which scale are we measuring this. Mm-hmm. And there are it's it's a it's a multifaceted, multifactorial issue, right? There are many factors that that are at play when when we want to look at why the situation is what it is today. Mm. Never claiming that it's just one issue, mm. but the the point that the point that I always make and I always want to to make is that the problem has been the same. I mean, there are external factors that changed. So, for instance, we didn't have the the Iranian Revolution or the Islamic Revolution in the the sixties. Yes. We had a uh, we had a Shah in Iran in the sixties. Fine. So that has this contributed? Yes. We didn't have a a, a central bank government a governor that is uh, um, wanted by Interpol. Yeah. Yes. So is this different? Yes. We didn't have a Saudi Arabia that is not interested at all in Lebanon. Unlike what people are saying, I mean, I I've heard people saying that Saudi Arabia is, is showing interest in Lebanon. I don't know what you're talking about. They're not interested in anything related to Lebanon. They've made the deal. They're happy to move to Syria. They're moving to Syria. They don't care about Lebanon. They've literally given Lebanon out to Hezbollah. The fact that Hezbollah made a military uh, uh, training slash parade slash whatever they did, what? days after the arab summit is a joke but also is a is a message that hey we're the ones in control of the country now with with an arabian blessing because the arabs guess what they do not want to be part of of the lebanese conflict anymore so do these factors contribute to the to the, the conflict yes do these make the conflict worse today? Yes. Do these change the fact that we have different social groups that have different social narratives that don't agree on a common vision or common interest or common goal? 
No. We still have that problem at heart. I mean, imagine if 14 March succeeded in 2005. We would be in a different place. Imagine if the 2019 revolution, quote unquote, succeeded in 2019. We would be in a different place. So there are, imagine if the Syrian revolution succeeded. Yeah. We would be in a different place. So there are different times in this timeline where if things happen differently, we would be in a different place. But all of these don't change the fact that Lebanon is a made-up state of different social groups that do not share the same narrative. They do not share the same interests. They do not share the same goal. They do not share the same values. So before the Q&A, we'll wrap up the conversation with what exactly is national identity? We can sort of ended with that subject maybe we can expand on what you think national identity is <laughs> want to take this uh, no no but we'll, we'll leave that to the end we can summarize it and it can extend to the q a so it doesn't have to be uh, too deep i want to get back to this let's begin in saida and then go back in time uh what happened the last few days in saida i agree is a it's 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 off-putting in every way and it's sorry I, I, am i boring you no you're good cool you're never boring ramsey <laughs> just making sure yeah, political sorry. psychologist needs therapy <laughs> absolutely absolutely <laughs> get him a therapist <laughs> and another gin and <laughs> It's, it's off-putting in, in, in every way. I don't think there should be any legitimacy offered to a warped interpretation of what a woman is wearing on the beach. I don't think there's a cultural expression going on. So I'll give you an example of what I'm driving at. I've hosted uh, somebody who's hell-bent in his beliefs, Hisham Bu Nasif. And he talks about federalism. He's talking about divorce. And his divorce is culturally driven but it's not really culture, it's Christian. And every time there's a moment like that, it's almost he's wearing Zelensky clothing on Twitter. You, I guess you know him. And he's there, you know, saying this is the great divide between Christians and Muslims. I don't think it is. I, 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 until I die, I don't think this is a Christian-Muslim thing. And you know what? That woman, if I'm not mistaken, was Muslim mm. wearing the bikini. I think that's right. Okay, so there you go. End of story. There's no Christian-Muslim cool. debate. So, oh, so we're, can, come. we're sorry. I have to stop you. Yes, I saw, yes, sorry, sorry. Yes, sir. We, we're back to the sectarian slash interreligion conflict. As I said, it's not an interreligion conflict. It is a sectarian conflict, however. So this Muslim woman is subscribing to a narrative that is not subscribed to by other Sunnis inside the. But this does not mean that the conflict is not sectarian. This is what I think. Now, but can I can I get what I was? Oh, sorry. No, you, I uh, wanted, sorry. There was the, a yeah. The, the, there was a point more than Hisham Bonasif to make. I hope so. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, I I do no, not. No offense, Hisham. No offense, Hisham. No, offense, Hisham. no, no, I don't. I don't subscribe to his view of Lebanon the way he wants to scale it down to a Canton from Batroun to Pshadri and. Maybe this street. But the Jabal Lebanon, he said he wants Mount Lebanon. He, wa he wants the Republic of Mount Lebanon. No, I, I think the, the language of divorce means you're giving in to violence. You're saying violence is legitimate. 
I don't want to be a part of that violence. I want to exit on a smaller stage. It doesn't convince me. So I don't think Saida is the great clash of civilizations between a couple and a few Sunni Muslims that don't want them there. What is it? Sorry? What is it? I think the fact that no one stood up for that couple right there, the fact the municipality didn't, the fact that the politicians of Saida were not there is a long-term consequence to a state that is completely failed. It's an ungovernable country, and that's the kind of voice that expresses itself in a void. And I think that's what happens when countries are heading to civil war. Yeah. So, but but let, let me add one more thing, one more thing. The reason I'm talking about Saida though is because that kind of event could happen always. That could that that kind of event could have happened 10 years ago. It could have happened 70 years ago. But the role of the state in not preventing what is violence, I think is the missing ingredient, not the communal anxiety or communal violence tendency or taking it bigger national identity and that's where the story begins in 1920 you you kind of hinted at you're right mm. lebanon is a hundred years old you're right so but it's i think the fact that there's no solid transcending national identity i don't see the link from that to say though do, do, do you want us to talk about national identity now or uh, you know what let's do it uh Camille, you can take a video of this i know um so, should, I, should I leave the podcast? <laughs> should we put someone else here? No. <laughs> no. So, so yes. So, my girlfriend, uh, my, my girlfriend is a political scientist, and she studies political structure, right? She studies political systems. I study human behavior. One thing does not cancel the other. And this is the one thing I love about being a political psychologist is that I can bring understanding human behavior into systemic systemic functioning of states and see how do they play together. That, you're sending that to your girlfriend? <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> so... Um, so, so saying that communal anxiety in one couple. <laughs> so saying that we we don't have a, a state does not mean that we don't have a sectarian problem, or sectarian conflict, or a behavioral issue related to how humans perceive their groups or other groups. And I think this is this is part of. Part of the problem that I, of part of the issue that I face with other academics who are not political si- psychologists or social psychologists, because I, I know that I don't have a problem with Thea, for instance, that Thea is a social psychologist and she understands what I say. But then I have a problem with political scientists who think that, well, it's all about the system, it's mm. all about the, the state. Mm. Yes, but no. So the state is important, the structure is important. But this state and the structure is founded by the dynamic that humans bring into the institution. And we seem to keep forgetting that. We seem to keep missing out on the the role humans play with their 
beliefs, with their attitudes, with how they think, with what they value. So, yes, Roni, not having a state is part of the problem. But if I was to be existential, I would say, why don't we have a state? And that would take me back to the fact that we don't have a state because we don't have a national narrative. We don't have a story for Lebanon where everyone in the country would subscribe to. But what about the machine that you referred to that destroyed three revolutions? You described them. The Syrian revolt, October 17, and March 14. How about that machine getting some credit for making this an impossible situation? We, we can we can certainly blame Hezbollah for uh, all of those. But we can also blame everyone else. Hey, let's own it. Let's own it. We failed. And let's own the fact and on the regional level we failed. What, they, is, what is we here? We is everyone who does not subscribe to the narrative of Hezbollah and the hundreds of thousands of people who support Hezbollah both online and offline because we can't keep dismissing these people these people exist it's not some some ghost it's not a phantom they exist there's a narrative where people in Lebanon and outside of Lebanon support the narrative that Hezbollah is bringing forward and I think part of the problem is dismissing this, is thinking that Hezbollah is some sort of uh, an alien force that is just trying to take over the Lebanese uh, scene. They're not. Um, they are one of the narratives that exist in the country. It happens, it just it happens due to regional and international factors that this one narrative has arms, has a militia, and is powerful. But that's one huge extra component. Yes, 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 absolutely. But what I'm saying is we can't keep dismissing the fact that there's a narrative that exists there. And this narrative is representative of some half a million Lebanese. I mean, saying that those people or this narrative does not represent these people is problematic. So, yes, I don't agree with Hisham when when, when, when he say that we want to to be honest, I don't think Hisham means he wants divorce. Oh, I, I don't know about that. He said it multiple times. Well, I I, I know I know. He's, I think he's actually when you when you when you're, when you're, when you're flying a plane when you're flying a plane if, if you if you want to to point the the tip of your plane to 140 north you just try aim for 160 and it just it, you know you end up with 140. I think Hisham wants federalism. He does not want. Um, divorce and because he knows I, I know that Hisham knows um, multiple Lebanons requires an international attention that is not present or available at the moment or in any moment Lebanon is no longer significant in any place and therefore no one really is willing to invest in negotiations to split the country up so so I, I just let's, let's let's dismiss that as something that is realistically uh, uh, unachievable due to the lack of, polit- of of international will. 
Okay. That's fair. But okay. So, but, but the narrative, let's, let's stick to the narrative because that's what matters, right? Yeah. He says that we hold different narratives in Lebanon. Now, that I agree to. We do. So, for instance, when he says that people inside the were expressing their narrative. I mean, someone might say that this is not the Lebanon I know. Yes, because the Lebanon you know is subscribed to a different narrative. But this does not mean that this specific narrative of the Sunnis in Saida does not exist. We keep forgetting. So, some, someone, someone asked me once, why do Sunnis in Lebanon feel threatened? I mean, they are the, the largest sect in the region. Why on earth are they threatened in Lebanon? The very simple answer to that is because the Sunni narrative has no grounds to survive in Lebanon. And that makes them threatened. So if, if, if we look at the region in general, there is a Sunni narrative. There's a Sunni conservative narrative. And this Sunni conservative narrative is somehow aligned, somehow. When I say somehow, it's like I understand that the, the, the reaction in Saida was a bit extreme. But if we were to moderate that extremism, which happened due to an to a state of th a threat, so they felt threatened, so the reaction was a bit aggressive. But if we were to moderate, we would end up with a moderate Saida where there's some sort of agreement that there are some values where Sunnis are comfortable with. When I say Sunnis, it's not a religious, again, it's not an inter-religious fight or it's not a, a religious uh, uh, struggle. It's more about the, the sectarianism. It's more about subscribing to a sectarian narrative. May I play devil's advocate? Yalla. And then we can take it to maybe <laughs> just... One more gin and tonic for Ramsey. And then we can give we yeah. can have a break in a Q&A. So sure. we'll, we'll let national identity hang over. Mm -hmm. um, let me play devil's advocate. There could have been a group called Hezbollah that would emerge without Iranian intervention. There could well be a political party called Hezbollah that is Lebanese, Lebanese politically, involved in Lebanese affairs. It may be a big group. It may end up being the biggest one. I don't think that Hezbollah that could have emerged was the same Hezbollah that exists right now. And I think there's something that we often do. Maybe it's because so much time has passed. Violence, political violence, destroys opposition. Every single Shia expression that was going against Hezbollah met with violence all of it that includes maybe what was once a more noble opposition to Hezbollah so that's the opposition to violence it mutates into something unrecognizable over time therefore what could happen over time is that a community is falsely representing something that is not natural I think violence brings out the worst in anyone it brings out the worst in communities too and I'm going to try to take it back to the beginning, 1920. Yes, there are multiple narratives. Even the most famous book about Lebanese history is a story about multiple narratives. A House of Many Mansions. Yeah. It's one of the best books, I think, that was written on pre-independent Lebanon. Kamal Salibi. 
Kamal Salib. Sure. So that book, and you can take whatever you want from it, but I think the wider story is exactly what you're saying. There are many narratives in Lebanon, that's true. But there was a time too, and I think this could talk about where culture and identity meet, maybe, and we can end it here. I think the rest of the country was emulating something that was maybe more available in Beirut. It's something that I've spoken to about at length with Nadim Shadi. I think you know him. He talks about Levantine cosmopolitanism all the time. I think these other parts of Lebanon were imitating Beirut at some point, meaning Tripoli appeared at some point more liberal than Beirut, more provocative than Beirut in the 50s and 60s. The cinemas of Tripoli competing with Beirut the nightlife of Tripoli, the scene in Tripoli, the alcohol, the gambling, the things that don't exist anymore in Tripoli. And these are silly examples, but I think they do mean something. And that Tripoli, predominantly Sunni city, even in the 50s still, a majority Sunni city, is not expressing itself in a way that you're describing as a Sunni narrative. Yeah. One more thing, one more thing. It's a short-lived window. I agree. It's very short. You can also mark it one end to the other. It's very short. But I think that is also important because it's central to how the country started. What happens later, I still don't think is a struggle of multiple identities or narratives that can't find common meaning. So, so, so let me ask you a question. You think we have a common narrative that is shared across the 6 million that live in the country and the 20 million that live abroad? I think we do not have a common narrative. Thank you. So to your question... You're welcome. I, I, I do not want to turn this into a, a lecture in social psychology, but... No, give it to me, Professor. We know for a fact that disadvantaged groups will always want to... You know, looking up to advantaged groups would want to look like them would want to compete with them. What we saw at some points in the in the Lebanese, sure, uh, I see the social psychologists nodding their heads. They're in agreement. Sorry, let me see. What they agree to this. Let me see what happened to the camera. Yeah. So what I was saying is, I think what what you're talking to or referring to in Tripoli or Saida or other places in Lebanon, is just an expression of um, different communities trying to mimic look-alike, the Christian advantage community that was present at the time. So they people wanted to be cool. People wanted to look like uh, um, they can, you know, uh, uh, keep up with the with the modernization mo modernization of of the state or of the, of the of the society. So, in a way. I think what you're what you're referring to is is actually an expression exactly of what I'm talking about, where these different communities try to they try to be marinates. Try to be marinates. Of course, they, they they try to they try to to mimic the the marinate narrative, the the marinate lifestyle, the marinate culture, because these were the cool dudes. These were the the guys that had the affiliation with the French. These were the guys that that had ability to, to travel. These were the guys who had the ability to, to, to for, for higher education. These were the guys that you wanted to look up to. So the cosmopolitan what? version of Lebanon is a Maronite 
version. Oh, of absolutely. It? I, I, oh, that, that's, no. that's 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 what I think. I no, think it's no, it's no. just it's it's different communities, different communities, trying to recreate, to cre- recreate something that they saw, they absorbed, they took, they understood, they accepted at times from a culture or an identity or a social identity that is, that's not necessarily Islamic. Yes, I'm sorry, I, I want to take you back to the, to the, the Arab identity because I think this, this really goes back to the, 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 the problem of the Arab identity. Anyway, anyway, this is, this is partly a problem of the Arab identity. But let me add one more thing, Ramsey. Okay. Maronite expression, I don't think, is an accurate reflection of cosmopolitanism. If anything, Maronite expression is more rural, it's more mountain. I'm talking about something like AUB, which you're right, is a Christian Protestant missionary. Very important feature in the region. Muslims going to AUB and Protestants showing up here and Druze coming from the mountains to study there in Ras Beirut and everyone, Tripoli, Saida, Sur, all over the country finding something in Beirut that works and they take it home I don't think is counter-narrative in a way that's problematic I think that's really how states and identities naturally begin and I think that's the ultimate cosmopolitanism that lingered post-independence and I think that's something that's worth celebrating. I don't think it's one of narrative war. Again, I'm not saying that multiple narratives should be fought. I'm not saying that we should we need to, you know, shoot down mm. multiple narratives. What mm. I'm saying is even when you say that people coming down to Beirut created some sort of a common whatever you want to call it. A mixing of dispossessed regional refugees too yeah but but we keep forgetting the influence greeks jews yes we keep forgetting the influence of the french and the english on the establishment of lebanon let's go back to 1840 there was a civil war in 1840 between the druze and the marinates this civil war initiated or was initiated by the french support of the marinates and the english support the druze as a matter of fact this is one of the questions that that is de facto if you if you want to become a judge and you're Druze, like why do you Druze speak English and not French? Um well the answer to that is because the, the English have sent their missionaries in eighteen uh, in, in nineteen uh, sorry in eighteen thirties to Mount Lebanon to the Shuf area to support the Druze, just like the French sent their missionaries to the Christian areas in Mount Lebanon, which is why the majority of marinades in Lebanon today still speak French and the majority of Druze still speak English. So I understand when you say that there's an obs- there's an observed variable that you're looking at, but you keep, not you per se, but everyone, I mean, in general, people keep dismissing the underlying factors for this construct. There's, there's a, there's a, there's a buildup to how things happened. So if we take Lebanon or Mount Lebanon, 1840, one civil war, two Qa'am Maqamiyatayn, one, one Druze, one Marinates. 1860, another civil war, one Mutasarrifiyya under the Marinates. The reason why Kamal Jumlat supported the Palestinians in the, in the 50s and 60s is because he had a personal 
vendetta with the marinades because there was a struggle with with, with the marinades in, in Mount Lebanon. So dismissing the fact that, that this entrenched cultural impact that the West brought with to Mount Lebanon, which extended to Beirut, both Muslims and Christians who were afflicted or influenced by this by this culture they both alike shared a sense of a narrative that is not local so yes Druze, Christians, Sunnis whoever came to Beirut back in the day I agree they had a sense of something new right and I also agree with you, something that could have could have become a national narrative. Mm. But it did not. Yeah. That's my that's the other problem. Yeah. So I'm gonna leave the, the, the crash on the Arab identity until until after the break, but then came the Arab identity and changed things. Because I mean yeah, 18, 1840, 1888, uh, the Ottoman Empire is, is falling apart. The First World War, the famine in Mount Lebanon, the First World War ending, uh, Sykes-Picot in 1916, uh, uh, the region has been split up. 1920, Greater Lebanon. 1925, the establishment of the Lebanese state officially. We, we got our Lebanese passports in 1925, right? All of this followed a buildup of events and then saying that all of this is meaningless because we gathered in Beirut in 1940 and uh, we could have built something. Yes, we could have built something. But the fact that we came from different backgrounds, the fact that we held, at least in the back of our minds, different narratives, led to us in 1950s falling to a growing Jamal Abdel Nasir who promoted an Arab, a new national Arab identity that we defined the splits in the region between what is an Arab, what is not an Arab, and showed itself, this, this new Arab identity, as a threat to all the minorities, with except to Druze, which is very peculiar, by the way. There's something that, to be, to be, uh, to be un, uh, studied uh, uh, later on, why did the Druze not feel threatened by this Arab identity? And my, my only justification at this, at this time is that Kamal Jumlat had this build-up that he had an issue with the marinades that he was trying to, you know, deal with. So he 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 subscribed to this Arab identity. But this is where the clash started, and keeping ignoring the fact that this is where the clash started um, is not acknowledging all the build-up of. Yeah, we'll have a fun Q and A with the audience. Everyone that's been listening the whole time, thank you. Thank you for sticking episode. around. So it's been a treat, Ramsey. Order whatever you'd like. Let's take a 10-minute break. Thank you.
let's give the audience a chance to engage. I'd like to start with Tariq Masri. Where is Tariq Masri? Can you stand? There he is. This gentleman came down from Tripoli to listen to you. So thank you to Tariq. Thank you. As thank a you, Sunni Tariq. man from Tripoli, my hometown, please. <laughs> First of all, uh, thank you both for having and just this speak to uh, the discussion. Yeah. Yeah. Second of all, I'm not Sunni. <laughs> Shit. Yeah. <laughs> Ouch, Roni. Uh, who has the second question? <laughs> <laughs> so um, you're both discussing the national identity thing and that most people in Lebanon actually do subscribe to the national identity idea. However, it seems to me that it's actually an empty concept in the Lebanese uh, context. So the million dollar question to me seems to be how can we create a, a common narrative, a common goal that unites people? We can see in many societies that they are more divorced uh, ethnically, more divorced politically, like the United States, Malaysia, India, and so on. Yet they, they have a system that functions. How can we do that? A question that is on point, the million dollar question is a million dollar question, thank you. Um, at some point I said that in Lebanon, the average score for people identifying with the national, with the national identity is very high. But we have a national identity. It's because people are subscribing to their own version of a national identity. So how do we build a common identity? My easy and simple question is by allowing Wizarit Tarbiyu Ta'aleem to create a proper educational uh, um, curriculum, curriculum that understands and acknowledges our differences, the different narratives. At some point, we don't have the same narrative. We don't need to have the same narrative. We need to acknowledge that we don't have the same narrative. It's all about what do we acknowledge to sub sub subscribe to. As a country, has five stories. Let's acknowledge it has five stories. Let's acknowledge that has its own story. Let's acknowledge as a group we subscribe to the fact that each group has its own story. So this agreement on what هذا الأمثلة عم تحكي عنه it's absolutely true. يعني أنا إذا بسأل اليوم مليون لبناني are you Lebanese? So there's questions for national identity. There's a scale to measure national identification. One of which, are you committed to being Lebanese? Do you feel like you belong to the Lebanese group? Do you feel like you you are uh, 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 other Lebanese people represent who you are? So there are there are like, items that measure identification. Lebanese, كلهم باختلاف بمختلف they all share this national identification. The problem is when they speak about the national identity, they speak about their groups. So I'll tell you about The Lebanon, they know. It all starts with the need We need a new history book. We need a new curriculum. We need, to, we need a narrative. We need to acknowledge the different stories. 
وي نيد تو اكنولج ديفرنت جولز فاليوز بيجي واحد مصر انه خي الحرب صايدة از انتي فيمينزم ما خص الفيمينزم بالموضوع يعني في ديفرنت فاليو ستراكشر بليف سيستم فور بيبل ذات مايت نوت اكنولج وات يو بيليف ان انا خي اي بيليف ان نوت بيتشز خي بروح على فرنسا على محل الناس بتزلط بس بفهم انه في محل بصيدا او 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 بطرابلس بيبل دونت اجري دونت سبسكرايب تو ذس فاليو سو واتس امبورتنت از تو اكنولج ذيس ديفرنسز اند وير دو وي ستارت وي ستارت بوزاره تعليم وتربيه يعني الوزاره السياديه الوحيده that every government has dismissed and think it's not important يعني المنصب الوزاري الوحيد اللي اذا انعرض علي انا شخصيا بهتم فيه هو انه حدا يقول لي بتعمل وزير تربيه بقول له ايه. This is the only position I'm interested in because this is the most influential position anyone can be in and it's always dismissed. بنجيب وزير تربيه ما فاهمين بالتربيه ولا فاهمين بالزراعه ولا فاهمين بالعلم ولا فاهمين وي هاف ا بروبلم ان هاو وي ابروتش بروبلمز You know? Just use, yeah, just use the mic, please. In my opinion, it is dismissed on purpose to keep this sectarian system, uh, this divided uh, society as it is. I, I take you back to the beginning of my, my conversation when I said the importance of these elections was to establish the fact that we can challenge the status quo. We have... مشكلتي انا مع مع الموجود اليوم بلبنان مش انه نحن ما قادرين نحارب النظام الموجود وي كانت فايت ذا ستيتس كو مشكلتي انه مجموعه الناس اللي مثلكم ار نوت انديرستاندينغ اور اكسبتينغ اور اكنولوجينغ ذا فاكت ذات وي هاف ا بروبلم وذ ايدنتيتي بيجي واحد بيقول لي مشكلتي بالاقتصاد خيي الاقتصاد از از ان اوتكم از ان اوتكم وات يو ار سينغ از ا ريفلكشن اوف ذا بروبلم ويتش از ايدنتيتي اوكي The fact that you know, we don't have enough political psychologists or social psychologists that study politics does not mean that our problem is systematic. Our problem is related to humans' attitudes and behaviors. So, when I ask you, I'll go to the first question. The request today changing the status quo starts one step at a time. If we can't change 13 MPs in one go, we can change how governments are made. But to do so, we need to acknowledge that this is where our power stands. في حزب طلع قالنا انه هو هو بيقدر وهو فيه وهو بيعمل وبرز بحليب ولبن شو اسمه طلع بالاخر انه منه قادر ينزل 20 نايب على البرلمان. So I don't want this narrative anymore, you know? I want someone who is capable of acknowledging where we stand and saying so I'm talking about the movement today where the majority of the people who are my friends are subscribing to and today all the people who are subscribing to what the, what the Uwait is saying and what the Uwait wants while I have a fundamental problem with the fact that Uwait before they come to Joseph Aon Reis Jumuriyi انه احنا عم نكرس انه انت خي المسار تبعك كاماروني قائد جيش ثم رئيس جمهوريه. بيرجع واحد بيقول لي ما عندنا مشكله هويه، خي ماروني عم يعمل قائد جيش ليعمل رئيس جمهوريه، ما عندنا مشكله هويه. So addressing the problem starts with acknowledging انه change is 
incremental it happens through steps it happens one step at a time acknowledging that what was required from 22 elections was not changing the system rather changing the status quo tipping the status quo towards change acknowledging and we have established that and then setting a plan setting a plan what policies do we want to change what narrative do we want to promote let's open it to other questions but sorry just for a second let samir ask because samir needs to go so you wanted to ask uh, a question well actually all my questions were just answered now oh, good. so oh, i you. totally agree that the problem is uh, in the education system uh, something needs to change there but i mean uh, hold on just let me look at my notes here for a second i, I for the first time i made notes you should feel honored <laughs> thank you <laughs> okay thank you Samir. um thank you Samir. yeah uh, i'm a filmmaker so when you talked about proactive <laughs> if you want depends on the kind of film though <laughs> <laughs> okay so uh, i only do i don't do commercial work no, no, a documentary. Yeah, okay, we can talk about okay. it. Get to the question. All right. Hell, <laughs> <laughs> you're All taking right, business so. opportunities now. Um, Why business? It's about Lebanon. Yeah, sure. it's about Lebanon. All right. Um, <laughs> documentary. Well, well, that that is one of my questions, uh, by the way. But I'll get back to that in a bit. But you were talking about proactive and reactive politics. It's very much like our cinema or our media. Ryan, uh, the main one. Okay. So, um, yeah, just like our cinema or media, we tend to reinforce the social norms rather than challenge, challenging them. And for me, that's what cinema is supposed to be. Um, when, when, yeah, so. There, there was that question about where was the question yes so he asked the question about the you know our leaders using our sectarianism to keep themselves in power that was answered but in that regard um, how do we stop them from continuing to do that خليك بالسينما كنت شو بدك بالسؤال؟ first of all I need to acknowledge the fact that cinema has contributed worldwide to the development of social norms. Many social norms have developed uh, through movies, through what the media has promoted, and cinema has played a crucial role in the development of social norms. بدي استذكر in this instance نادين لبكي هو I haven't met but I spoke to and نادين لبكي without knowing has been an advocate for a common identity throughout her work في موفي اسمه هلا لوين you know the movie هلا لوين بيحكي عن a Christian village and a sorry a village that is both Christian and Muslim and the woman, because of a conflict that prison uh, 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 between the men, decide to change their their uh, faith. So Christian women decide to dress as Muslims, and Muslim women decide to dress as Christians, and they confuse their men. And then someone died, and when they were trying to bury him, they the question was Halalawain as where do we take him, where do we bury him in the Muslim or the Christian part of the town. 
I think that this represents our our Lebanese problem. So, uh, I do think that the image, the picture, plays a huge role. Which is why I have a huge respect to journalists and people who work in the media sector, because they do contribute to how the society see uh, um, reality. Reality is hugely influenced by how it is perceived. And it is perceived by how it is being portrayed to them by those who can portray to them. And if you hold a camera or a microphone, you have the ability to influence how people see a story. Could I offer an analogy? Sorry, sure. Nadine Lebek in that movie, which is a celebration, if you will, of what you're describing. I find the ruggedness, and maybe I'm alone here, I find the the harshness of Ziad Wairi's narratives as more appealing. Meaning, a West Beiruti story where you're celebrating a cause and watching your country implode. And the uh, the insult, where Adil Karam is a Bashir-loving, yeah. uh, where's the name, Fesuh, for, and he loves Al-Uwait, he wants to kill Palestinians. At the end of the movie, He's meeting a human being and reconciling. Even Samir Jaja in the movie, that sort of transition. I found Ziadwiri as a more convincing version. It, it's not uh, trying to force this yeah. song and dance in the mountains. Yeah. So, so, sorry, Yumkin, uh, I, I brought up Nadine Labaki because I've, uh, I've had a, I mean, there's a personal story, but sure. Wh- whatever speaks to you. Mm. The point is that movies and cinema and the media in general has been a have played a pivotal role in the development of how we see things so back to your original point part of the problem in lebanon is the majority of the media and filmmakers and anyone who who deals with this business is politicized which means when you express an opinion you're expressing someone else's opinion when you say a story, you're saying someone else's story. When you when when you when you describe a narrative, you're describing someone else's narrative. Which which takes me to why I mean something that I always preach, I always talk about is why I believe develop a development will only happen with freedom. Once you've allowed people to be who they are, what they are, in their different expressions. Even in the disagreements, they will bring out something that you don't have. But you would allow to exist because you're not judging the fact that they're not aligned with who you are. But in an authoritarian regime, you'd want everyone to be aligned with who you are. Back to Yasmin. We were speaking about Yasmin earlier. So Yasmin is, is, uh, is you know, working out her PhD proposal and... Um, so we were talking about social policy today and the fact that how, how does social policy work in an authoritarian regime? And uh, I mean, it was the first time in my life where I stood and I asked myself, yes, in China, who would tell the, the Communist Party that, hey, this doesn't work? You know, who would dare to say that? Who would dare to say that something is not working and we need to change it? How does policy develop? in an authoritarian country 
and we are in a way it's the same as here we are exactly yeah. we are that's exactly what i want to yeah. reach we are in a way an authoritarian country where the different sects the different narratives in dictate that anything you want to do or bring forward has to have consensus at least from the tawaif leaders you know from the sectarian leaders so how do we stop them by disengaging from them by 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 feeling that we can separate ourselves from the leadership not in a way that is reactive sorry Majdulin did the video on Paula and uh, Cynthia Zarazir today uh, there's I don't know her personally we've only spoke a few times but I have a problem with reactive journalism is that reactive journalism wants to to make it look like you know في في سلطة وفي ضد سلطة وفي ناس مع المصارف وناس ضد المصارف. It's always a struggle. It's not really this simple. It's not black and white. Life is not black and white, and and Lebanon is not black and white. مين بيأثر بلبنان اليوم? Who can influence policymakers into changing what they think? You know. I'm 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 disengaged from the Lebanese political system in a way, but at the same time. I don't subscribe to people saying I want to fuck up the system, you know? It's not okay. Okay, you want to screw the system. What's the, what's your what's your alternative? Tatlali wahde that is a is a is a PhD holder in social sciences but the the alternative is I don't care. What I care about is is screwing the system. That's not okay. I know who you're talking about. Okay, let let, let me let me ask sual in a way, you know. And we we need to distance ourselves from from the, the decision makers. We need to al- allow ourselves. Speaking of Yasmin, yeah. We need to allow ourselves uh, 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 time to to or space to think outside of what we are allowed to think, and um, we need to connect with with others that might think alike to build a different narrative. Yeah. Again, back to narratives. We need a different story. I want to, oh, with your permission since your answers are episodes in themselves they're very good answers they're thoughtful bye samir thank you samir we get one more gin and tonic for ramsey thank more. you one more and then you reach albert costanian and then i reach albert costanian okay. so let's keep hi the, albert with the answers as brief as possible okay. so that we can get as many questions I, in. i'm sorry apologies i the gentleman with the microphone could you just stand up and yeah thanks with the microphone. Yes, uh, my question is. It's good. It's good. There, there you go. Yeah. There. Okay. So. Yeah. My question, uh, since you said that uh, everyone, that we should acknowledge the differences about uh, narratives and uh, uh, ethnical and geographical and all these things you talked about, uh, what do you see? What solution do you see for now? If we want to be practical. We're at this point in time. Would you endorse the the solution of Hisham or Sherbel Nahas or uh, the so, sorry, so what's what's the solution of Sherbel Nahas, man? I don't know. It's something something uh, unrealistic, but maybe some people, uh, a few minority, can. Yeah. Anyway, I'm talking about identity uh, identity wise. 
as fundamentals to, to solve these fundamentals that are recreating the problem as I, always. I, so I, I think, do Paul, think? No, I don't subscribe to any solution sub, يعني, by, by any of the people you've mentioned with all my people I don't subscribe to any of their, their solutions. I think we need to acknowledge the problem. يعني إذا أنا بعدني أنا وروني we can't acknowledge the problem. روني مثلا روني thinks the problem is حزب الله. No, okay. that's not true. Okay, at, at least هكذا هكذا هو يقالي خيي. That's what they told me. That, that's a, that's too reductive. No, okay. no, no. So, so that's that. Okay, so now I know that George Wardini but ديكاسترك ها. آه هتحكي. Okay. So so let's say for instance that someone thinks that I don't. Accept the fact that Hezbollah plays a role in our problem. Hey, I do. So I'm saying the problem extends abad bin Hezbollah. It's older. When we had an issue on the identity of Lebanon in the 50s, ما كان في Hezbollah. When we had an issue over the identity of Lebanon, of Mount Lebanon, in, 19, in 1840 or 1860, Shia did not exist in Mount Lebanon. What I'm saying is the core problem of Lebanon has not been acknowledged. Someone, someone wants, to, wants me to acknowledge the fact that we have a, a, a lack, the state is absent. I acknowledge that. Would things have been different if the state existed? Absolutely. Best, best. Would, have it, would have it solved the problem? Absolutely not. We had a state in the 40s, we had a state in the 90s. It did not fix the problem. Laish, Lan, we're not acknowledging the actual problem. The actual problem. Up to this day, I still talk to people. George Wardini, Mama Yumethil. وروني شطح مع ما يمثل. I still can't agree with them that the the problem in Lebanon is related to the to the lack of a narrative or or identity. طب if I can't agree with these people, how can I agree with four million people or six million people? إنه نحنا we what we need today is we need a new narrative. I guess what I would only add to this is that. since I'm put now in a position of disagreement, I would make the case that the goal you want... Tony, you can't agree with me now. Now is like be like the golden moment to agree with me. To agree with you? <laughs> I think national narratives uh, are more consequential to state building than national narratives produce states. Okay. So I think that's where it comes from. And I share the sentiment that it should be a lot easier to do this. And you can have multiple identities. You can have diverging views to a point. But there should be some national story that's accessible. I completely agree. I think that goal doesn't happen in this predicament. And the predicament, I think, is not Hezbollah. It's what Hezbollah, it's what Hezbollah represents. Okay. Yeah. I think that's where it comes from. But it's not that... dismissing national narrative on the contrary I, I, I don't disagree with you I mean I think that we do have a problem now I mean Fasil Musallah يطلعي يفردلي عضلاته بعد يوم من القمة العربية بجنوب لبنان مصيبة انه 
وخي شو بدك بالذا فاكت وات ذا بارتي از سينج وات ذا حزب از سينج ذا فاكت ذا بيبل ار سبورتينج ذس نيراتيف يعني اي ونت اون تويتر لاست نايت لاست نايت ليتيرلي لاست نايت ذا فيرست تايم اي اكنولج ذا فاكت ذا ذس نيراتيف اكزيست لاست نايت هي الفرق بيني وبين غيري يمكن اي اكنولج ذا فاكت ذا حزب الله هاز نيراتيف اي اكنولج ذا ات اكزيست اند اي لوك انتو ات hundreds of people are subscribing to the how proud they feel with Hezbollah doing what they did a few days ago fi alaf min an-nas that feel proud that Hezbollah has showed power وبيقول لك it's not against Lebanon it's against Israel لانه هاشم صفي الدين حكى هيك اوكي سوده حسن نصر الله بري 2008 بعدين وي سو ايار واي سي ايار لانه كيب سينج سبعه ايار اتس نوت سبعه ايار انا مش شوف حزب الله ترايد تو انفلتريت علي في 6 دايز من سبعه ايار ل 11 ايار واي اي دير سي حزب الله اكلوا قتلي من الدروز من سبعة أيار ل 11 أيار. والدروز are proud about this. How can I tell the دروز that they shouldn't be proud about the fact إنه طعموا حزب الله قتلة. بس نحكي عن back back to your question about I'm sorry I'm, I'm, I'm back no, to please, the original please. question yeah. of a national narrative. How can I convince a group of half a million people that they shouldn't hold pride in the fact إنه طعموا قتلة لحزب هو معتبر حاله حاله اقليميه هني بيعتبروا انه لما حزب الله طلع من 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 الضيعه الشيعيه تحت عليه وحاول يفوت عليه اكل قتله لما طلع على الباروك بالشوف اكل قتله We're diverging a bit. Let, let me open yeah. the mic to more questions. Sure, 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 okay. sure. Yeah. yeah. Sorry to interrupt this, but there's many questions. The gentleman with the sunglasses on hiding his face, George Wardini. Just for the record, I cannot see anything without the sunglasses, so I have to okay, put Okay, okay, George. jet ski. jet ski. I did very well, okay? <laughs> okay, that's the official story we're going with. So, just because I feel like I have heard you and Ramzi individually long enough to know that I don't think you guys disagree. I think you are describing... Uh, a certain image from two different perspectives. Okay, so we can agree that Hezbollah is a consequence of a problem, but we can also agree that it in itself has become a problem that is as big or if not even bigger than the initial problem that caused it. So now the question is, can we actually build a narrative, if not an umbrella for the different narratives, if they are not all equal? لا جورج وي كانت بيلد ناريتيف اف ذي نوت اول ايكوال اند اوف كورس وي نيد تو ديل وذ ذا فاكت انه حزب الله عنده سلاح اي ام نوت سينج ذات سو ذس از ا بري ريكويزيت يو هاف تو ديس ارم حزب الله از ا بري ريكويزيت وي كان اجري اوف كورس بس بس في فرق بين هاو ويت هاندلز ذس وفرق بين هاو شرب النحاس هاندلز ذس هاو ذا فاكت انه هاو ات شود بي هاندلد از نوت ولا هاو ويت هاندلز ذس ولا هاو شرب النحاس هاندلز ذس أنا لا بدي أعترف إنه حزب الله عنده سلاح وبيتعامل معه لأنه اتس اتس ديفاكتو 
ولا بدي اقول له نحن فينا ونحن بنقدر نحن ما بعرف شو دي فاكتو لانه بوث بوث ناريتيفز دونت ورك The narrative that works is Lebanon اليوم وقف خلص Lebanon is a state of a political lock اوكي ولا حزب الله كان improve or change or develop anything ولا anyone else هلا what the opposition has managed to do which is great led by Kataib I have to give this to Kataib انه Kataib has sorry Roni I have to give this to Kataib the fact that Kataib has has managed to play a, a very important role in bringing Uh, the Mu'arada into a position where nothing is happening and we have to give this to Sami nothing is happening because Sami is taking a position or took a position Abel where he forced a position to walk into acknowledging that nothing is going to happen with the current status quo so the question is what do we do now جورج بنفوت على الكتايب يو نو سوري لو هانجينج فروت ثانكس ليتس موف اون جورج يو كويستشن جاست ثرو ان ماي انسر اي نيو ذات ذير اذر كويستشنز واصلا في عالم متهمين اني كتايبي ما بحمل بقى يعني يو نوت هيلبينج يو نوت هيلبينج اي هيلبينج ات ايذر يو ذير اذر كويستشنز اي نو ذات وانتد تو بي اسكد دورينج ذا بريك اي هيرد بيبل وانتينج كويستشنز يس ذا ليدي ان ذا باك بليز ثانك يو Uh, hello. Um, so hello. when we spoke, about, when you said, when you spoke about sectarianism, and you said that now sectarianism is like growing, kind of, uh, I would like to know your opinion on how did the Thaura influence this, um, like, improving of sectarianism or Thaura increased sectarianism yeah. because it pushed people back into their holes. So there's a group of people who happen to be living in Beirut. They go to AUP or LEU or other places that, you know, are representative of everyone else. They think that they are Lebanon and they've helped push everyone else back into their shell. So I don't think the Thawra has helped people move out of their sectarianism. If anything, it has helped sectarianism grow. By telling them, I don't acknowledge their narrative. I don't acknowledge that you're different. I don't acknowledge that you have a different story of what Lebanon is. Okay, in addition to that, I want to acknowledge the fact that the Thawra, the, fast, the first few days after the Thawra, we went into accusing one specific Christian party of the issue and then one specific Shiite party of the issue We end up uh, saying that the Hezbollah and Tayyar Watani Har or Jubran Basil are responsible for the problem in Lebanon and dismissing the fact that everyone was part of the problem. So I don't think the Thawra per se uh, helped in the um, helped in dealing with the sectarian issue per se. If anything, it helped in increasing sectarian affiliation because people who live in Batroun or in Mount Lebanon or in Saida or in Sur or in Baalbek, they felt more affiliated with their groups. Uh, I'll take a jab at this. Yeah. That's not my memory of October 17. Yalla, tell me, what's your memory? But maybe I have bad memory. 
Maybe. No, no, I'm sure. I'm sure many would agree with you. So, as an AUB graduate who pretends to. Hello. Are you AUB as well? I'm not. You're not. Okay. I'm Kent. Kent. I'm proud Kent graduate. Okay. Yeah. That must be like LAU. Yes, sure. I don't remember uh, every other protest happening in the country as Beirut imposing anything. Actually, my memories of October 17 across the country were less sectarian. Even when I think that word doesn't really, it doesn't really define much of October 17. From, from a scientific perspective, we don't have data on what happened on October 17, 18, and 19. Because that's where really the revolution happened, right? 17, 18, mm. and 19. Yeah. If data, please tell us. My understanding is that the Sunnis went there against Gibran and No, it started over WhatsApp. Yeah, please en- enlighten me. How did it start? Okay, Nayla, uh, yeah, no, yeah. Ma- ma- don't say something you can't defend. Please, ac- please enlighten me. How did it start? We remember where it started. It did not start in Beirut. It started in Beirut. Wait, 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 Again. <laughs> Naila, you're dismissing. You're dismissing. Let me you have Alf Salt of Dili. Okay, I'm going to actually interrupt here as the as the longer running podcast. I'm going to shut both of you up. Yeah, that naturally extends to you. You kids, shut up, please. Are there any other questions from any innocent bystanders? Anyone? Because I know that people wanted to ask questions in the during the break. And maybe, was it Adnan that wanted to ask? I don't remember. Who. Where's Adnan? He's right there. Tia. Okay, maybe just one more question. Yes, Tia, please. I have a question. I hope this doesn't turn into another long answer. It can't, because Alias, I think, will shut us shut down. down. Yeah, so. I just want to acknowledge that uh, Tia is a doctor in social psychology. Oh, uh, she's uh, uh, she's one of my co-authors on on one of the papers that we're writing, but we have bad matulait. Or oh, anything she says is held against her in uh, in a court of law. Yeah, <laughs> So I wanted to actually challenge you. Oh my god! <laughs> um, but I, I I open the question up to both of you. Oh no! Um, I'm thinking about what you were saying about these multiple narratives and these multiple stories because we've talked about this. I agree with it. Um, that I think one of the ways forward is to accept that there are multiple stories because every group has its own story. My question is, what do we do about the injustices 
that have been carried out against different groups. And Ramzi, you mentioned multiple cases of massacres over the years. And I think part of the problem why we might struggle going forward to accept these different multiple narratives is the fact that there are groups um, that feel that they have been wrongly dealt with, that yeah. there have been human rights violations against them. Yeah. So how do we deal with the issues of justice and probably a much needed transitional justice that needs to be part of these multiple narratives? It's a very te technical question. Sorry. So we know from a legal perspective that uh, law has set 10 years as a timeline, time frame for, um, right? What we keep dismissing about Taif is that it brought this to an end. So part of the Taif agreement was to bring the injustices to an end without accountability, but also without acknowledgement. What I think we need is an acknowledgement. Um, I don't think today after at least 30 years ago from a social legal I dare say social perspective the crime has has passed right I don't think I can judge someone after 30 years of them committing a crime but I can acknowledge that I've committed a crime and I think what we need is an acknowledgement of crime committing. Because everyone commits crime. We've all won the war. We've all, uh, we are all uh, 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 victorious in, in the war is a very populist approach. I'm going to try to wrap it up now sure. by leaving it. Maybe we can end it with words that would lead to a further discussion later. I've thought about what you're saying for many, many years. And I think my thoughts have either matured or devolved. I'm not sure anymore. They're going either in the right direction or the wrong direction. I think there was a victor in the civil war. It was the Syrian regime. Syrian, sorry, sorry, let me, let yeah, me, sure, sure, sure. The, the Syrian regime, I think over time, and maybe this will take years, manipulated the civil war. They didn't just show up in 1989. Sure. And they showed up months into the civil war, became heavily involved in directing that civil war, for years fought Arafat, for years supported Arafat, for years fought alongside Kataib, for years fought against Luwit. The Syrians entered Ba'abda. The Syrians kicked a prime minister in Ba'abda yeah. to the French embassy. Do you know I mean, Michel Aoun was a prime minister when he was kicked out of Ba'abda? But the Syrian regime also determined what justice looks like. Because, at the end of the day, I know it's unpopular to say this, and I know we had one Lebanese forces supporter in hiding, sitting with us. He's not here anymore. 
I wanted him to identify himself because I thought it's important. I, I don't care what the pushback is. Samir Jaja is the only political head in this country that paid something. It's not a full price, but he's the only one that got close to what we're talking about, which is more than just acknowledging that bad things happened. The man was in jail for 11 years. Now, is he still a wartime criminal? Yes. But I think that is what justice looks like if it's applied across the spectrum. It wasn't because Lebanon wasn't in control of Lebanon. But I'll add to that, I think, where Hisham maybe gets it right, maybe, is that Lebanon was heading to divorce. Maybe. Maybe that's the end result of Lebanon. And maybe the Syrian regime is part of the reason why divorce didn't happen. And maybe, if you look at it long term, maybe these communities are not meant to live side by side. Maybe. But I think, I think the story is one of giving them at least a chance, a fair chance of trying. Our fair chance was so small, it was so limited, but it was beautiful. And I think it is fair to say the 50s and 60s were light years better than 2023. And I think that is something worth holding on to. If it doesn't work, fine, fine. But I think the Syrian regime holds so much responsibility for what happened to both Lebanon and Syria. And you know what? We would not be in this nightmare had that not happened. I, I just want to say that over the years, I've, I've met like literally tens of people, hundreds of people. And Rouni Shatah is one of the very few people that I have utmost respect for. Because even when we disagreed, the guy or the man or still managed to present a very coherent argument about what he thinks is right. So he's throwing Shatah. And let's extend the round of applause to Ramsey, please. An excellent episode. And also to the audience. These were great questions. You guys stuck around for 45 minutes longer than the episode itself. This will come out over the weekend, editing included. Thank you very much. And I want to really say thank you for everyone that stuck around. Tomorrow, I'm with Naila Al-Khuri at MTV Podcast. And next week here at Alias is Michael Kerem. Michael Kerem is a wine expert. He wrote a book about wine in Lebanon. He actually has a movie called Wine and War. Check it out. It's one of the best movies I've seen on both subjects. It's such a good movie. We're going to talk about that and more. And Ramsey, I want this to happen more often. Sure. Why not? So thank you. Thank you, Ronnie. Political psychologist on Instagram, Beirut Banyan, myself. Thanks again. And we should start calling this the Albert Costanian. Yeah. <laughs> Number five.